Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Welcome to this first of a two-part special edition of Compliance Beat, where I'm going to talk about breaking news hot off the press. Just in the last week or two, there had come to everybody's attention that our friends at the fraud section of the Department of Justice had released a very interesting document with a little fanfare. Apparently, it was released and ended up on their website somewhere around the middle of February, but wasn't noticed for a few days. So no press release, no discussion, no rollout announcement. Andrew Weissman is still chief of the fraud section. I'm not certain who or which members of the staff were responsible for this document. We don't know. I haven't seen that in any of the reporting so far, but it is very interesting. Well, let's talk about it. I've heard it variously described so far as the compliance checklist. The actual title of the document is Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. It has a short introduction where it talks about the source of the information in this checklist. It includes the uh, U.S. Attorney's Manual, our friend, the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines for Organizations, and the resource guide to the FCPA, what's commonly known as the FCPA Guide or FCPA Resource Guide. Now it's getting to be uh, four and a half, five years old. I think it actually came out in 2012. And the Good Practice Guidance on Internal Controls, Ethics, and Compliance from our friends at the OECD also gets a shout out in the references to this document. So first impressions is that there's not a lot of new here, but it's been consolidated from a lot of sources that we all have been looking at for many years. So in that regard, if nothing else, it's very interesting and potentially very helpful. Before we go any further, uh, if you haven't already, if you look in the show notes uh, on the website, compliancebeat.com, I'll put the location where you can find this lovely document at the Justice Department. Put the web link there so you can click on it and take a look at it. While this checklist cites a lot of materials that we've been familiar with for years now, it does have this introduction, which is new. And there are a couple of things in there that I'd like to go over because I think it's particularly interesting. In the introduction, it talks about how prosecutors should go about considering conducting an investigation or bringing charges or negotiating or settling cases with organizations. It talks about what are commonly known as the Philip factors. That's from the Philip memorandum of a few years ago. It talks about the fact that, and this is particularly interesting, we've heard this before in some statements, but it's interesting to see it in black and white, how the fraud section wants to be clear that they don't use any rigid formula to assess compliance effectiveness, and they recognize that every organization has a different risk profile and has a different way of approaching their compliance program, and therefore evaluating the effectiveness of a program is not going to be a one-size-fits-all. They're very careful uh, here, as they are in all of their public statements, to not make any promises about what specific factors need to be in or out for there to be a consideration of that program being quote-unquote effective. So nothing new there, but it's interesting to see it in black and white. But then they go on, the last third paragraph of the introduction, however, they say, there are some common questions that we may ask in making a determination. 
And so that sets up what the rest of this document is, which is, as I said, been commonly referred to as the checklist. And the reason why it's called the checklist is because it has little teeny boxes in the left-hand margin right next to the items that are listed in the following pages after the introduction. So it looks like something that somebody would literally go through and tick off if they were going through and making a determination one way or the other as to whether these conditions exist. But aha, the next sentence then states very clearly, the topics and questions below form neither a checklist nor a formula. (laughs) Again, going back to that central premise that I just mentioned, the uh, fraud section, as well as the department as a whole, has always been very careful to say, we're not going to give you specific criteria. So, although we're commonly calling this a checklist, the department says, not a checklist. (laughs) So keep that in mind as you're going through. Although it, it really does look a little bit like a checklist, guys. And then the last piece of the introductory admonishment, which is particularly important, again, to consider when you're going through the list, is... And they point out that in not every case will all of these factors matter. Some of them will will be more relevant in some cases, and some of them will be less relevant in others. Some of them will be completely irrelevant, depending on the circumstances. So as you go through this list, keep that in mind. Your mileage may vary. So the checklist that's not a checklist has 11 general topics, and I want to, as I said, talk through each of those individually. Some of these topics are going to be familiar. The phraseology is a little different. Some of the questions that are listed, the sample topics or questions, are not exactly what we've seen in the past from either the sentencing guidelines, the U.S. Attorney's Manual, or the OECD Good Guidance. But uh, for the most part, a lot of it is familiar. The first section talks about remedying uh, misconduct. So uh, remediation is a question that's asked here, but also there are a couple of questions about what the company has done to figure out how the problem happened. Root cause analysis is how they characterize it. And if there were quote-unquote prior indications, or in other words, why didn't the system, the monitoring and auditing processes of the program work to uncover this if they, in fact, did not. So it's looking at whether the issue was detected, whether the reason the issue occurred was then examined and discussed and resolved, and whether there was a remediation for the damages caused. The second topic that is discussed is the involvement of management, both senior and middle management within the program. No real surprise here, tone from the top, tone from the middle. There is some discussion about what they characterize as oversight. And in here, they talk about, quote unquote, compliance expertise. What compliance expertise has been available on the board of directors? That's the first question out of the gate, the first part of the question out of the gate. Have the board of directors and external auditors had private sessions with the compliance and control functions? As you all know, if you've listened to my podcast at all, I have a couple of podcasts about interacting with the board and what the board should know and what the board's responsibilities are. Here it is, front and center, folks. The expectation when they're looking at senior and middle management involvement is goes all the way up to the board of directors. Did the board have oversight? How were they involved? Do they have expertise at the board level? What kind of information were they getting? And specifically, have they had executive or private sessions with compliance and control functions. This goes back to the changes back in 2010 to the sentencing guidelines, folks. 
does the person or persons with the day-to-day responsibility for the program, that's the definition from the guidelines, does that person or that personnel have access to the board of directors? Are they discussing these salient, important facts with them? Take a close look at that. Here it is. It's one of the three checkbox, not checkboxes in under the second topic. Third topic is autonomy and resources. We just talked about access to the board. First question out of the gate here is whether compliance is involved in training and decisions relevant to the alleged misconduct. So they're going to look at the role of compliance with regard to whatever happened in the organization. Was there training? Were there adequate resources for training and communication and oversight? The second question is particularly interesting. It asks about the relative stature of the compliance function compared to other functions in the organization. And they list off specifically, when they're talking about stature, compensation, rank and title, reporting line, okay, back to the board there, resources, and access to key decision makers. So they're going to look at the person or persons that are responsible for your day-to-day operations and determine what their stature is. Additionally, they want to take a look at the experience and qualifications of the personnel, what they're broadly calling autonomy, including questions as to who determines the compensation, bonus, raise, hiring, and termination of compliance officers, and how else the organization ensures their independence. There's a lot of it in this document that's really going towards the the relative position and authority of the compliance function and how it relates to the board of directors, what kind of coverage that function has, what kind of resources that that function has, and things like quote-unquote stature. Really need to take a hard look at this. Interestingly, after that, they talk about a concept they're calling empowerment. Have there been specific instances where compliance tried to raise concerns or raise concerns, and how did the company handle it? Have there been situations where perhaps there was a gag order or somehow or other there's an implication that the compliance function was not able to speak to the board of directors or otherwise relate to the governing authority of the organization the particular incident? Funding and resources. Does the compliance function have the proper budget to address the risks that the organization faces? Interestingly, the last checkbox that's not a checkbox under this topic is asking whether the company has outsourced the compliance function and what the rationale around that was and how has it been managed and how has the organization assessed the effectiveness of that outsourced function. This is kind of interesting. I don't know of a particular case that might have led to this concern about outsourced compliance, but it is an interesting one. So if you are an organization, particularly a smaller organization, that has outsourced some or all of your compliance function, you want to take a close look at this. The fourth topic heading is policies and procedures. Interestingly here, under the subheading design and accessibility, accessibility is one of my favorite things. If you haven't listened to my podcast, you probably haven't heard me say much about it, but it is, to me, the key to any written standard. And there's a whole subtopic here that talks about accessibility, how policies and procedures have been communicated and how the company has followed up to evaluate the effectiveness of those policies and procedures and their rollout. 
Interestingly, when they're talking about design of uh, compliance policies and procedures, they talk about the process. This is something that they've mentioned a couple of times in the past, but it's particularly interesting to see it here. And it's the first thing that they mention when they talk about design and accessibility of policies. Who's been involved in the process? What did that process look like? How have business units, divisions, and others been consulted prior to rolling out the policies? So in other words, what was your process for updating that code of conduct? What went into it? I would think relevant things that you might be able to show would be, did you consult with the subject matter experts, maybe both within and outside your organization? Did you benchmark your code of conduct to determine what risks you might be either underplaying or missing completely in your current iteration of your code. They're going to look at the process by which you developed your code of conduct. That might be news to some. It's not just whether you have a code of conduct that exists, but how accessible it is, how you designed it, and how you're assessing, assessing rather whether the policies have been effectively implemented and whether they're accessible out there in the organization. For part B under policies and procedures, there's a lot of talk about integration. How have you measured the, the rollout and the effectiveness of the rollout? How have those policies led to or been implemented along with controls? Since a lot of this material has been taken out of the FCPA guidance, there's some discussion about vendor management and payment systems that may or may not be applicable outside of sort of this third-party context, depending on what policy procedure you're looking at, but still worth taking a look at. And then the last of the subtopics I'm going to talk about in this edition, and then we'll have a part two following up next week, is the risk assessment process. For organizations that haven't taken a risk-based, data-driven approach to Assessing their compliance risks, this is really important to pay attention to. And I'm going to go through each of the subtopics here, the checkboxes that aren't checkboxes, to talk about them specifically because it's really important to understand. First and foremost, they're looking to see if you have a risk management process. And they talk about methodology. So they're expecting you to have a risk process where you can explain where you're gathering information and data how you're looking to define and discover risks that you face and address those risks. They're looking for a real process, not we're you know going to poll and find out what people think risks are, but what's your methodology to go through and thoroughly figure out what the risk management process is. Secondly, they're looking for how you gather that data and information and how you analyze it. What metrics, and they use the term metrics, what data does the company have that you've collected to help determine whether there's been misconduct? And how is that data used to help determine the direction of the compliance program? So they're going to ask when they're evaluating the program, what data are you collecting? Is it just who calls the hotline or helpline? Or is it something a little bit more dynamic than that? Does it include proactive auditing, for example? And then lastly, the third one, what they're titling manifested risks. How has the company's risk assessment process accounted for manifested risks? 
What is a manifested risk? Well, it's a risk that's happened. In risk management speak, this means you need to account for a risk that has already manifested itself, that's already become apparent. So it's not entirely clear here, but I think what the department is considering here is how does something travel from being a probable or somewhat likely or however it's determined type of risk in your risk assessment, once it manifests itself, how do you handle that? Is there a process by which the risk assessment accounts for things that have happened or will happen or are in the process of happening? But you at least want to have an answer for this. So that's about half of our checklist that's not a checklist. And next week, I will bring you part two. In the meantime, I would like to note again that on Wednesday, March the 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Central, we are going to be holding a webinar. If you are interested at all in compliance and the remote worker, please join us. You can find out information and sign up for this free webinar at our website, www.compliancebeat.com. Again, that's going to be on March the 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern, high noon central. Uh, Both myself and Beth Vanderslice are going to spend a little bit of time talking about reaching remote workers. And I think it's going to be an interesting talk and we hope to have many of you participating so that we can have a good give and take on that topic. So until next time, please sign up for the webinar and please tune in next week for part two on the checklist that's not a checklist. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.